The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer, W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, For God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. Giving is part of the operation of the believer's priesthood. It's part of our responsibility to support the local church as well as missions. It's our opportunity to express our gratitude for all that God has given to us and provided for us, not only in our spiritual life, but in our day-to-day life, meeting our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. As the men come forward, let's uh, bow our heads together and pray. Father, we thank you again for the way you provide for us, for your day-to-day grace blessings and giving us jobs, food, the uh, air we breathe, and the uh, houses that we have, the homes we have. Father, we thank you for all the physical blessings as well as spiritual blessings. And now as we uh, return a portion of what you have given us to you, we ask that you bless these gifts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you that we can come together this evening to study your word, to let our souls be refreshed by the eternal truths that you have revealed to us in the scriptures. And above all, Father, we thank you for our salvation, that you from eternity past planned a perfect salvation that would take care of every problem, every sin in human history, a salvation that was based exclusively on who you are, and what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and was not based in any way on anything that any human being would do. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, and for the Holy Spirit you've given us to indwell us and to teach us. And we pray that under his filling ministry we might comprehend what the scriptures teach, we might have a greater understanding and appreciation for all that you have provided for us. 
We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study on basic doctrines of the Christian life, and we're focusing last week, this week, and next week on the basics of understanding our salvation. Now, I find as a pastor that it is important for people to regularly think through salvation. After some uh, 45 years as a believer and at least 30 of that seriously studying the Word, I find that every time I go back and I study through just the basic foundations of the gospel and salvation, I come to a greater understanding and appreciation for everything that the Lord has done for us, everything that we have in our salvation. Just think about the fact that the gospel message, the work that Christ did on the cross, is so simple that you can sit down and explain it to a four, five, or six-year-old, and they can comprehend the fact that Jesus died for them, that they had, there's a penalty for sin, and that Christ paid the penalty, and that by simply trusting Him, they can have eternal salvation. And then you can take that same gospel message that focuses on the work of Christ and all the various dimensions of that work, and you can sit in a doctoral seminar at a uh, at seminary level where you're tearing apart every Greek verb and noun related to every dimension, and yet you come out of class still scratching your head trying to understand the dimensions of that salvation. That alone is a testimony to us of the fact that this is something that was originated by God and not by man. One thing that often happens today in our society that's become so dumbed down as a result of uh, different factors in the education system, failures in the home, and numerous other issues, is that we have we have many people who pick up their Bible and start reading it, and they just can't grasp the basics of salvation. As soon as they start running across these various words, such as regeneration or redemption, imputation, word you rarely hear in everyday language anymore, or propitiation, or even justification, you lose people because they don't have the basic vocabulary anymore to grasp these Concepts, And this is a tragedy of our culture. It's a tragedy in the church today. And as a result, in too many places, the gospel just isn't clearly proclaimed. And what is fuzzy in the pulpit is just a fog in the pew. And the problem is, or the problem that results from that is most people just don't understand what happened to them. And so they proclaim a fuzzy gospel or a fraudulent gospel. And they talk about this thing you have to do to be saved and that thing you have to do to be saved and inviting Jesus into your heart or repenting from your sins or getting baptized or whatever it is. And the whole gospel message gets lost, mired down in the confusion of misunderstanding of what the Scripture says. So we're taking the time to break it down a little bit. The fact that salvation is simple means that you can explain it to anyone. Even the uh, most challenged, perhaps, can understand it, and a young child can understand it. But there are more dimensions to it than simply Jesus saves. While that is true, how do we understand salvation? So we go back to where we've started in this series by looking at our foundational verse, 
When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man can come to the Father except by me. And again and again I point out that this is just a, a verse that for, for centuries has struck unbelievers like a slap in the face because of its claims to exclusivity. And you often hear people say, well, I just don't believe that that can be enough. And ultimately, even if they don't express it that way, that is what they're saying. I don't believe that's enough. So you see what you really have is a juxtaposition of two faith positions. I believe Christ is enough or I don't believe Christ is enough. Ultimately, it boils down to the issue of faith. What are you trusting in? And we have made the point that the, in order to understand salvation and in order to understand the exclusivity of the gospel and why the Bible consistently has an ex- exclusive, one-way-only message of salvation is because we have to understand why we are being saved. We have to understand uh, more than the surface issues related to salvation. And so we start with the person of God. And that is where we should always start, that He is the Creator God, and as the Creator, the sovereign Creator of the universe, He is the one who has the right to make the rules. He made us the way we are, created us in His image and likeness, and He is the only one who has uh, the comprehension, the understanding to know what makes man tick. Furthermore, we know that God is righteous, that He has a standard. And it is the standard of his own character. And when he applies that standard to his creatures, this is related to his justice. Because God is immutable, which means he never changes, that standard is applied equally to every human being, whether they are born in India or in Asia somewhere, born in Africa, born in North America, wherever a person is born, they have the same opportunities, equal opportunity to know God and to come to an understanding of the gospel because not only is God perfectly just, but God in his omnipotence is perfectly capable of getting the message to anyone who has a desire to know the answer. We know that God is truth and in his truth he is going to express express the gospel, express the conditions for salvation in a way that relates to his absolutes. And furthermore, we know that he is love, and in his love, he provided a perfect solution to the problem of sin, a perfect salvation for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we start with the character of God. And once we understand God's character and what is necessary in order to have salvation, for in its essence, salvation is the ability to have a close, intimate relationship with God, we realize that the aspects of salvation, the fact of salvation, goes far beyond what we may think in some superficial religious revivalistic concept. Furthermore, we know that God is omniscient, so he knows all of the knowable. And in his omniscience, he knew everything that would have to be done in order to provide a perfect salvation that could apply equally to every single human being in human history. And so he designed the human race from the very beginning 
to have a certain integrated wholeness, an interrelatedness that made us all part of one another and related to our progenitor, Adam, so that we're not individual creations. And because there is this unity in the human race, a unity related to Adam, God could provide a salvation through one human being that could apply to every human being in the same way that Adam's one sin applied to every single human being. Well, we'll develop that as we go along. We're looking at why God's way is the only way, and the first thing I pointed out is because God is the one who created man and defined his nature, his function, and his limitations. Second, we pointed that out that God had created man in his own image. So man is a reflection of who God is. And so when Adam sinned, that initial sin entered into the human race, it created a distortion. It didn't destroy that image, but it distorted the image. But because we're still in the image and likeness of God, we can understand God. Every human being has the capacity to understand the gospel unless they are brain damaged. They have the capacity to understand the gospel and to, un- and to respond to the gospel. Pointed out last time that there are six basic problems once you start breaking down this idea of sin. You can break it into six different components. First of all, there's the problem of sin itself. And this is the foundation of that which separates man from God. Second, there is the penalty of sin. There is a judicial penalty that must be paid for the violation of God's provision, for the violation of God's mandate in the garden. The third problem relates to who God is. He has a perfect character. He has a perfect righteousness. And God's not like some lazy uh, parent today in modern America that just... uh, has a bunch of children and then goes down to the mall and turns them all loose so they can just wreak havoc everywhere. When God's creatures violate his standard, it necessitates discipline. And that comes from his justice because he is a just God. And so there is a necessary condemnation. Perhaps that's one reason a lot of folks just have trouble understanding the gospel is they never had any discipline instilled in them in their home as they were growing up so they don't understand just the the basics of having accountability. Fourth problem is the that we are born spiritually dead. We're separated from God. There is a spiritual separation that occurred when Adam disobeyed God, and that spiritual separation affected man constitutionally so that every descendant of Adam is born spiritually dead but physically alive. Fifth, we're born with a lack of righteousness. We have to have perfect righteousness in order to have a relationship with God. God is perfect, and he cannot have a relationship with any creature that is less than perfect. And then finally, there's a lack of eternal life. We are a time-bound creature. We are temporal, and in order to have an eternal relationship with God, there has to be a solution to the fact that we lack eternal life. Okay, let's... Go back to review briefly where we started last time. We saw that we have God on the one side, man on the other side, and man was created in the image and likeness of God so that there was perfect rapport, perfect fellowship, perfect intimacy between 
Adam and his creator. And we read in Genesis 2 and in the Genesis 3 account that God would come on a regular basis every day in order to spend time with Adam and the woman at that time. She wasn't named Eve until after the fall. And so God came to spend time with them and he communicated with them and they talked and I'm sure they, the, the man and the woman learned about the cre- creation and what God had done and God helped them understand and comprehend all the different aspects related to biology and botany and uh, geography and we don't know how long they were in the garden before they sinned. I personally don't think it was very long. It may have been a few months. It may have been a few years. I certainly don't think it was hundreds of thousands of years. In fact, we know that Adam was in his 90s when he had his first son. So we know it couldn't have been less or more than 90 years. So it's only a short, relatively short time in the garden. But when Adam disobeyed, not when the woman ate the fruit, but when Adam disobeyed, because God designated him as the head. He was the, res- the primary, re- primary responsible party. When he disobeyed God, a barrier was erected between man and God. And this is seen in Genesis 3, when God came, as he did daily, to walk with the man and the woman in the cool of the day, that they heard the sound of his voice and they ran and hid. And that indicated that something constitutional had happened to each one of them. And they were now afraid when God said, why did you run and hide? He said, we heard your voice and we were afraid. They had never been afraid before. Something had happened to them already. And that's the fulfillment of that judicial principle that was laid down in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17 that in the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. The Hebrew grammar that underlies that is a statement of emphasis, that there was certainty that instantly there would be a penalty. Not a day later, not two or three hours later when God showed up, but instantly there would be this penalty of death. Not 900 years later when Adam finally died physically, but at the instant that he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so sin entered into human race, and we looked at that last time, and we saw that sin permeates everything that we do, so that all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. There is no good that we can do that measures up to God's perfect righteousness. Furthermore, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we address the question, what is sin? And I looked at some of the basic words in the original languages. Chata in the Hebrew means to miss the mark, to miss an absolute standard, to fall short of that standard. And so that every human being has fallen short of that standard. The second word was pesha, which means transgression. It means to revolt against a standard. Again, you have that idea of an absolute that overrides everything. Then we have the third Hebrew word, aven, which means iniquity or guilt. And the root idea means to bend, twist, or distort a standard again. So throughout, the one thing that all of these words have in common is that a standard is missed, it's broken, it's twisted, but there is an absolute overriding standard that is no longer met by the human race. 
Then when we get into the New Testament, we have the Greek word hamartia. And hamartia means to depart from divine standards of righteousness. It has the idea of wrongdoing. For example, in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So this is the root problem in the sin barrier. It's the foundation. And we saw that the solution at the cross was unlimited atonement, that Jesus Christ uh, died on the cross for every human being in history. He paid the penalty for every single Sin, And this is seen in various passages, such as 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died as a substitute for our sins. That word for, in a context like this, indicates substitution. In the Greek, it is the uh, preposition huper, which means that somebody takes the place of something else. It is a real substitution. For example, if I take you out to dinner... And the bill comes and I pick up the tab and go to the uh, cash register and pay the bill. You can't come along afterwards and pay it again. It's already paid for. And that's what happened on the cross. It was a financial transaction in some words. It's amazing how many terms that are used to describe sin and salvation have an economic nuance to them. It is a transaction that was accomplished on our behalf when Jesus Christ finished the work on the cross, he said, it is finished. And he used the Greek word to telestai, which is in a tense in the Greek. It's a perfect tense indicating complete action. And to telestai was what you would write across the bottom of a bill, paid in full. So there is a true payment, a full payment. I'm getting a rattle or vibration up here on the sound. Back behind me. Uh, so there's a true payment. He died as a substitute for our sins. It is a real payment. Second Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died as a substitute for all. We have the same preposition again in the, in the Greek. Therefore, all died. It is a real substitutionary death. This pays the penalty for sin. For every, I mean, this atonement was resolved by... Uh, resolve for every human being. The word atonement means at one And so this applied to every human being. Then we come to the second problem, which we uh, didn't get to last time. That's the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is first described in Genesis 2.17, that you will surely die at the instant of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a spiritual death that entered into the world through Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Now, this is not physical death here. This is spiritual death, because it's related to the sin penalty. Now, there's a similar verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that talks about, In Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. And in that verse, it's talking about physical death because the context is physical resurrection. But in Romans 5.12, the context is spiritual death, the penalty that was spread to all men. Death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. 
And the way the scripture presents this is that Adam was our representative head. And he died on the, he, he disobeyed God, ate of the fruit, and as a result he died spiritually. Now, a lot of people think that that's not fair. See, that was Adam's decision. I wouldn't have made that decision. I'd have done something. I'm smarter than Adam. But God, in his wisdom, created Adam as a representative. And so the entire human, human race comes from Adam. So that gives us a genetic unity. Now, if you want to play the game of what if, what if... Adam's sin didn't apply to all of us. Or what if we weren't all related? Then Christ couldn't, on the other hand, die for all of us. See, because there's this unity in the human race, because we all came from Adam, not only was Adam's sin of such a nature that it affected every human being, but Christ's redemptive work on the cross is of such a nature that it can also apply to every single human being. So if you don't like the fact that Adam's sin affected you, the problem with that is that you end up losing your salvation if you get rid of of Adam's representative headship. Adam was our representative head, and in his fall, we sinned. The Puritans had in their uh, the, the primers that they had to teach the alphabet to the young children, they had a little rhyme for every letter of the alphabet, and for the letter A, the children would memorize, in Adam's fall, we send all. And they would learn basics of total depravity from the very beginning of reading. So we have a penalty of sin, spiritual death that spread to all all men, so that 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 had to be resolved. There had to be a payment, and that payment comes through the doctrine of what is called redemption, the doctrine of redemption. And redemption has the idea of the payment of a price, the payment of a penalty. Whenever you redeem something, you are paying for something. And so we have passages such as 1 Timothy 2.6, which says that he gave himself as a ransom for all. And the noun there translated ransom is the, uh, is anti-lutron in the, in the Greek. The word lutron is a noun, lutrao is the verb, and this entire word group speaks of making a payment that, uh, prefix anti means substitution against just, it's a, a uh, similar preposition to huper indicating substitution, that this was a substitutionary ransom that was paid not for some, not for only those who believe, but for all. Jesus Christ's death on the cross solves certain elements of the sin problem for every human being. This is why it's called unlimited atonement or unlimited redemption. 2 Peter 2.1 makes the same statement. For, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And there we have the Greek verb agorazo. And agorazo has as its root the Greek word agora, which was the word for the marketplace. So this again is a is an economic term to make a 
financial purchase, to pay for something. And agorazo means to buy something, uh, buy something in the marketplace. Then you have another form of this word that is used, ex agorazo. And I'm not going to go through all the different Greek words. There's, a, there's three or four different Greek words used for uh, the redemption word group. Most all of them are translated into English as redemption. And the idea simply is to purchase something. So here you have false prophets who deny the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who bought them. He actually paid the price. So this tells us that there were elements of the sin problem that were paid for by everyone. As we'll see as we go through our study, that doesn't mean that everyone is saved. There are two dimensions. One has to do with the the universal sin problem in the human race, and the other has to do with the personal, individual dynamics that have to be resolved. Now, the words that are used in the Old Testament are very uh, interesting in understanding the concept of redemption. The first word that's used is the word pada, which has the idea of paying a price to free someone from a state such as slavery, death, or destruction. And it always emphasizes the payment of a price. And the thrust is freedom. The price is paid so people can be free. The second word that is used also helps us understand the concept helps us understand the concept of redemption, and that is the word goel. It means redemption, but it is applied, for example, to Boaz in the small little book of Ruth. Boaz was her kinsman, and under the concept of leveret marriage in the Old Testament, if a, if a woman's husband died and she was left uh, destitute, then a relative of the husband could come, had the responsibility to come and to, he could marry her and take over her care. And so this was the principle of the kinsman redeemer. And this foreshadowed the fact that the redeemer of the human race had to be our kinsman. He had to be one like us. He couldn't just be an angel. God himself couldn't come along and simply uh, come down and provide some salvation work. It had to be someone who was related to us, someone who was as as true uh, a human being as Adam was. So the Goel emphasizes the responsibility of a blood relative to provide for and protect for blood relatives. Again, it emphasizes the unity of the human race. Now when we get into the New Testament, we have that word group, Lutrao, Antilutron, which I just mentioned from uh, 1 Timothy 2, is part of that word group. And it means to pay the ransom price, to deliver by ransom, to liberate. It's very similar to that Hebrew word, pada. Uh, it's used in 1 Peter 1, 17 and 19, that we were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but with the precious blood uh, as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Agorazo is the other word. It's, uh, we've already discussed this a little bit from the word agora, meaning the marketplace. And Christ paid the price to purchase those out of the slave market of sin so that we could have eternal life. And ex agorazo indicates the removal of that person, that they are purchased from the slave market. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 and Galatians 4 
verse 5. The Old Testament picture is very helpful to understand redemption. And in the Old Testament, they always go back to the Exodus event when the Jews were redeemed from the slavery in Egypt. So that God established or set this up historically so that that event of the Jews going into slavery in Egypt and then his miraculous deliverance of them where they were brought out of Egypt would be a picture for all time of his redemptive work. And as part of that, you have the final uh, the, the, the final event with the tenth plague where the angel of death came down and the way to survive was through the application of the blood of the lamb. So it, the whole picture of the Exodus event is a picture for us of salvation because so often, as I pointed out, these terms, justification, redemption, expiation, imputation, are terms that are abstract. So the Old Testament gives us concrete images that we can then bring over into the New Testament and they flesh out these abstract doctrines that we find developed in the New Testament. Exodus 6, 6, the Lord said, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem, that's that the verb form, ga'al, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And Exodus 15:13, And thy loving kindness, that is, in your grace, your faithful, loyal love, thou hast led the people whom thou hast Redeemed, It had already taken place at this point. In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. So redemption, first of all, delivered us. The redemption of Christ on the cross delivered us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13, man is no longer under the law. Jesus Christ was the end of the law. No one ever was saved by keeping the Mosaic Law. Its purpose in the Old Testament for Israel was not to give them a way of salvation, but to demonstrate that no one could fulfill the law. No human being could meet it perfectly, and so man stood in need of a Savior. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Second, redemption is the basis for forgiveness of all sin. It's the basis for forgiveness of all sin. Isaiah 44.22, Colossians 1.14, Hebrews 9.15, and Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. Redemption, furthermore, is the basis for our justification. I went past that slide pretty fast. Redemption is going to be the basis for our justification. Christ had to pay the penalty before there was that which was necessary to fulfill the work of justification. Redemption is the basis of justification. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by His grace... 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, justification is through redemption. So logically, the price had to be paid before justification could be accomplished. Now, redemption is an objective payment of a price. But justification is the, is the subjective application of Christ's righteousness to man. So we draw this distinction between that which is the universal objective problem and that which is the internal subjective problem in each individual. Fourth, redemption then is said to be the basis for the eternal inheritance for all believers. Hebrews 9.15 And for this reason, He is the Mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So redemption pays the price. It purchased us from the slave market of sin, and the purpose for redemption was to prepare a people for eternity. The purchase price was the death of Christ on the cross. First Peter 1.18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So in this verse, it goes back to the Old Testament and it picks up that imagery from the Passover, the imagery from the atonement sacrifices, the imagery that of the Lamb that was perfect, that was sinless, that was impeccable, that was fully qualified, therefore, to be the sacrifice. And it uses the imagery of blood, because in the Old Testament, there was the, the teaching that life was in the blood. So blood was a physical symbol, a physical representative. It's a physical reality, but it represented life itself. Now, what's interesting is you get into the Greek lexicons and the Greek grammars, and they all recognize that this phrase, the blood of Christ, is an image. It is not a literal phrase or a literal term. It doesn't mean that the literal hemoglobin and plasma and everything else that makes up the blood is, is what saved us. It was a picture of a violent death. In fact, you, I can illustrate it very easily if you go back into... Uh, go back into Genesis, in Genesis 9, when Noah established, our God established his covenant with Noah, he said in the middle of that Noahic covenant, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man his blood will also be shed. If anyone sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed. Now that's the basis for capital punishment down through the centuries. But does that mean, when he talks about if anyone sheds man's blood, does that mean that it only applies to violent death where blood is physically shed? Or does it apply to any kind of homicide? You know, you don't have to uh, actually shed somebody's blood in order to kill them. You can strangle them. You can hit them over the head. Uh, you can poison them. There's any number of ways that you can kill someone without causing them to bleed. But the phrase, shedding of blood, became an idiom 
for a violent form of death. And so when you get into the sacrifices and talks about the shedding of blood, it is an image, it is a phrase, an idiom that means violent death. And it is a metaphor for death. So that when you come to the cross, Jesus Christ died on the cross. It wasn't the physical shedding of blood because in in crucifixion, very little blood is actually shed. But the term shedding of blood is a picture of death. It's an idiom for violent death. This is indicated in any number of uh, classic grammars on Greek from Martin Gingrich to Kittle that this is a picture of his spiritual death. He finished the payment for sin before he died physically, before the Roman soldier stuck the spear in his side, before the blood and the water came out. Any of that came later. The penalty was paid during those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when it was dark upon the face of the earth and God the Father imputed to Jesus Christ the sins of the world. That's when the price was paid. So the penalty of sin is taken care of through a payment, the payment of Christ's death, redemption. He paid the penalty for every sin in human history. And then the third, the third factor that has to be understood in a universal sense is the character of God. Because God is perfectly righteous. Because that is the standard of God's character, he can't have a relationship with individuals who don't meet that standard. You may be nice, and you may have a great personality, and you may be quite attractive, but, but God looks on the, on the heart, and if we do not match his perfect righteousness, if we don't live up to that standard, then there can't be a relationship. And so there has to be a solution to that problem. God's righteousness has to be satisfied. And so that his justice can bless mankind. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we have to have a satisfaction of God's standard. And this is the uh, aspect of salvation called propitiation. Propitiation. And the key word to understand propitiation is that English word satisfaction that God's righteousness had to be satisfied so that his justice could bless man. So we have a definition. Propitiation is that aspect of the saving work of God through the substitutionary spiritual death of Christ on the cross, whereby the justice and the righteousness of God are satisfied concerning the sins of mankind. When we've looked at atonement, and we looked at redemption, those were manward. But when we look at propitiation, this relates to the character of God. That God in His absolute righteousness has to be satisfied with the payment for sin. So it's very different than the first two that we've looked at. But what we learn from the Scriptures is that propitiation, just like redemption and just like atonement, has specific verses that apply to all, to every human being. Now, you don't get that universal terminology when we get to the next three. But when we look at these first three, the Bible clearly spells out their application of the solution for all. Let's break it down. Look at the Greek words. The, the, the Greek word is hilasterios that's used in passages such as Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And it means to propitiate. Sometimes it's translated to expiate, to appease, or to satisfy. 
And the best idea is the one to satisfy God's righteous standard has to be met. The Greek concept, though, is based on the older Old Testament concept, and there the noun that was used was kaporeth, and it referred to that which was propitiatory or the mercy seat. Now, what in the world was a mercy seat? The mercy seat was the top element on the Ark of the Covenant. It's described in Exodus 25, 17, and 18, where God said, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim, or two cherubs literally, if you want to have good, have good English, uh, two cherubs of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. So it looks something like this. This is a replica that's been built. And you have the acacia wood that uh, the ark was made of, overlaid in gold. It's a picture of the humanity and the deity of Christ. And then on top of the box, there was a lid set, and on that lid, there were two angels, a particular class of angels called cherubs. And those, and the cherubs are always associated in Scripture with the holiness and the righteousness of God. And inside the box were placed certain symbols that represented Israel's sins, the Ten Commandments that were broken, the manna that they complained about, and Aaron's rod that budded that took place in an instance where they rebelled against the authority of Aaron. And those were placed inside the box, and so these angels are looking down on the lid, and they are, as it were, looking down at these emblems, these symbols of Israel's sin. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in and he would place a bowl of blood from the sacrificed lamb. So you see the connection here between atonement, connection to redemption, and this blood is placed on the mercy seat so that this lid of the box was the kaporeth, the mercy seat. And when the blood was placed there, the cherubs representing the holiness and the righteousness of God, representing his, his righteousness and his justice, are satisfied. The righteousness of God is satisfied so that the justice of God can then bless mankind. Romans 3.25 says, Whom God displayed, talking about Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or as a satisfaction, uh, in his blood, literally it's an instrumental dative, by means of his blood through faith. The, the blood of Christ is the means of payment, the means of propitiation as well. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. So the cross is a demonstration of the righteousness of God. You see, so often when we're explaining the gospel to people, uh, folks sometimes will say, well, how in the world can a loving God send his creatures to a lake of fire? And the issue isn't how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire. The issue is how can a righteous God let sinners into heaven. And so Jesus Christ is set forth as a propitiation to demonstrate the standard of God's righteousness and that it must be met before he can allow anyone into heaven. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that means true humanity, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make satisfaction, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And then in 1 John 2, 2, we see the universal dimension of this. He himself is the propitiation of the satisfaction for our sins, but not for ours only, ours being believers, but also for those of the whole world. And in John's terminology, world relates to believers and unbelievers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there's this universal dimension to the propitiation of Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation relates to to God. It, it, it satisfies his righteous standard so that his justice in turn can bless us. So we've seen that sin is solved by unlimited atonement. It is an atonement that applies to all. The penalty of sin is solved by a universal redemption. He pays the sin penalty for all. And his character is satisfied by the propitiation of Christ, which goes for all. But not everyone is saved. Because, you see, these only relate to universal dimensions of the sin problem. But the next three that we will look at, the problem of our lack of righteousness, the problem of each individual being spiritually dead, and the problem of the fact that we are positionally in Adam can only be resolved by our individual appropriation of Christ's work on the cross. So there's a universal aspect and there's an individual aspect. And the three individual aspects mean that every person has to make a decision, has to choose to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation isn't automatic. You don't get saved because you're born in the right family. You don't get saved because you get baptized. You don't get saved because of any non-volitional circumstance. You are saved because you trust Christ alone for your salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for this great opportunity to understand the gospel more clearly. To realize all of the dimensions of this magnificent work that you prepared for for centuries in order that everything would come together in the fullness of time in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank that you have provided a salvation that, that makes sin no longer the issue. But the issue is faith in Christ. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right now, right where you sit, is to believe that Christ died for you, to trust in him. Omniscient God knows all the knowable, and he knows what you are trusting in for salvation. And the instant you trust in Christ alone, you are saved. All of these things happen to you, and you're regenerate. You receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You're declared justified, and you are given eternal life. And that life can never be taken from you. It is God's perfect gift for you. All you need to do is accept it to receive it, to put your trust in Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, understand these things more fully, to contemplate uh, the work of Christ on the cross, that we might appreciate all that you have done uh, more profoundly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.